So, welcome everyone. If you do not feel welcome, I wanna I wanna share with you uh, a story about Leon, Joseph, and Clyde. Leon, Joseph, and Clyde. So, Leon, Joseph, and Clyde all had a bit of a Messiah complex. And what I mean by that is they literally thought that they were God incarnate. They were Jesus Christ. Their problem, though, was that they all stayed at the same psychiatric hospital. And someone wrote a book about this, The Three Christs of Ypsilanti, Michigan. And there's a movie about it, The Three Christs. I don't think it's got Ypsilanti, just The Three Christs. Uh, Richard Gere plays, plays in it. And the, the psychiatrist, Milton Rokic, I, I might be mispronouncing his name, he wanted to study them. This, this happened in the 1960s. He wanted to study them, and he decided, what will happen if we put all of these Christs in the same room? And uh, what will happen with their delusion? So he got them together, and he said, look, I know the Bible. You guys know the Bible. There can only be one Christ. So, so who is it? And he wasn't doing that to mock them. He was doing that to sort of try and get them out of the idea that maybe some of them, maybe there's just one Christ between the three of them, and hopefully none of them is the Christ, and, and, and Jesus is the Christ. So it didn't work that well. At some point, he asked, them, asked one of the guys, how do you know that you are Jesus Christ? And he says, God told me I am. And then one of the others said, no, I didn't. <laughs> and... <laughs> So, so this guy eventually published a lot on this, on this topic, but he tried his best to bring them back to reality. He didn't succeed. He tried his best to bring them back to reality. But for them to realize that they were not the Messiah would have been their salvation. If they realized that they are not the Messiah, that would have led to their salvation. Their delusion would have been broken. There's a Danish philosopher, uh, Soren Kierkegaard, and he says, Now, with God's help, I shall become myself. Now, with God's help, I shall become myself. Now, here's the thing, friends. You can remain a Messiah. Now, these are ex extreme examples. But to a certain sense, to a certain degree, we've got a messianic complex when we set, make ourselves the center of the universe, which we all do. And for us to sustain that idea of us being the center of the universe, you have to get rid of all the evidence to the contrary. And your world will become very small as a result of it. So the only way in which you can access the real world, the only way in which you like the three Christs of Ypsilanti, the only way in which you can break out of this delusion is if you accept your appropriate smallness. Does that make sense? For you to realize you're not the Christ, you're not the center of the universe, for you to enter this world, to, to, to live in the bigger world, you need to embrace your appropriate smallness. As a matter of fact, your very salvation depends on it. Now, we're in the season of Lent. Can anybody tell me where does Lent come from? The name Lent. The Afrikaners in the room, you guys have an advantage. Well done. But you were also here in the morning, so it's, it's not that exciting. So, so, so Lent 
It is now the season of spring in the Northern Hemisphere. So Lent was seen as this build-up, this new life that is coming out of the desert that is winter. And it sort of reaches its climax as soon as we reach Easter. And we've got the death and resurrection of Jesus. And as a Christian, we know that this is the, the highlight of our year. And it's very sad that middle-class South Africans do not really celebrate Easter. You know, a lot of us do church attendance, and we are sort of in a, in a spiritual family. But Easter is sort of the one part of the year that everybody's gone, right? Whereas in Europe, that's the only time they're in church. For many of us, it's the only time we're not in church. And it's sad because we miss out on the significance of Easter, and that is why, especially in the church in the Northern Hemisphere, they've got Ash Wednesday and they've got the season of Lent, which is this massive build-up to the cross. And it's almost a gymnasium of sorts to try and get ourselves ready to really understand and experience the cross of Christ. Now, there's one thing that is essential for us to really get the most out of what it is that Jesus did, and that is appropriate smallness, to realize our insignificance, to realize, to be, to be, uh, what's the word, reconciled with our, uh, with our fragility. Now, Lent has typically been uh, seen as this time of going into the wilderness and being reminded of it, and I think it's so appropriate. I remember a couple of years ago, my cousin and I, we went to Namibia, and we are not those guys with um, the four-by-fours outside. We know nothing about, you know, like, the real world, and we, I, I flew in there. I had a, we, we did a, I was there for a wedding, and then we just rented this, I don't know, Toyota Avis, one of the best four-by-fours on the market, and uh, because it's a rental, and we, we went into Sources Flay, and it's this massive desert in the middle of Namibia. And this was over December, which a lot of people advised us not to do. And they said, if you want to visit the dunes, just make sure you go very early in the morning or sort of late in the afternoon. And we slept in, and when we woke up, it was overcast, and we said, yeah, let's do it. So... We didn't really have a lot of money, so we didn't want to pay the guy to take us there with 4x4, four four, so we walked. And we walked several kilometers, and it was nice. I, I didn't regret any of my decisions up until that point. And then as we reached the so-called dead flay, the skies just opened. That one overcast day in Namibia started, disappeared, and it was just scorching down on us. And it was very difficult because... You wanted to preserve energy, but at the same time, you had to walk very quickly because if you stand still for too long, the sand burns you on the side of your, of your sandals. So we, we spotted what we th thought was a bit of shade, but who knows what it was. And uh, we were trying to aim for that and, and get to the shade, but we realized, geez, we're actually in a little bit of trouble. And we were very uh, gung-ho you know, a few moments ago, no, man, we're going to walk. No, man, this is just a money-making tourist scheme, this, this uh, uh, shuttle. And we didn't see any rangers. We didn't see anybody. And you're just this little speck, this little dot in the desert. Now, I'm going to lie if I say that I had a spiritual experience that day. Um, if I prayed, it wouldn't have been a nice prayer. But 
uh, eventually we made it to that piece of shade, and this has got nothing to do with the story, but one of the game rangers was just looking through his binoculars, and he found us, he saw us on top of the dunes, and he drove to us, and he realized that these guys are in big trouble if I did not come. So he just came and said, yeah, look, I, I just came to save your lives. <laughs> and and that, was, that was good, because what I experienced there physically, my absolute fragility being at the mercy of this desert wasteland, is a little bit what we are supposed to experience spiritually in the time of Lent, being aware of our brokenness before God. And this will prepare us and prepare us well as we move towards Easter. Does that make sense? Are you with me? Now, the problem with appropriate smallness, with humility, is that the world is very much against it. It's not a virtue that is shared by this world. So there's a lot of opposition. Uh, David Brooks, he's, uh, uh, he's a guy I like to read. He, he writes for the New York Times. He's the only guy who writes for the New York Times that I find interesting. And, and he said, he definitely said something. Um, he, he writes about this and he says, humility has come under attack in recent decades. Meekness became identified with conformity and self-repression. A different ethos came to the fore which the sociologist called expressive individualism. Instead of being humble before God and history, moral salvation could be found through intimate contact with oneself and by exposing the beauty, the, beauty, the power, and the divinity within. So what he's saying is that, yeah, in the Western world, humility was important at one stage, but for the last couple of decades, humility is seen as just conforming to society. You need this radical self-expression, and you can see various manifestations of it. One of my friends told me, oh, I must just watch this, this show on Netflix called The Last Dance, and it follows the, the story of the Chicago Bulls. Who of you saw it, The Last Dance? Um, Henning? What did you think of it, by the way? I hated it. Um, <laughs> And I could, I could appreciate the fact that this, this Michael Jordan, even though I know nothing about basketball, is probably the best athlete that's ever, you know, been born. And, um, and it was a great feat, but I just experienced it as nauseating because every time they had an interview with one of the guys, he's like, well, I'm the best there ever was, best point guard in the world, and uh, I knew that. I just had to show the world. And then the next guy comes and says, well, I knew I'm the best defender in the world. Nobody comes through me. Nobody comes through me. And I just knew this, and I had to show them. Everybody's convinced. It's, it was like we laugh at the three Christs of Ypsilanti, but we don't la laugh at the 20 Christs of the Chicago Bulls in the 1990s. They are all so obsessed with themselves, and it's so self-referential. Now, I've given up uh, Netflix and series for Lent. Um, that's how spiritual I am. But it means that I am watching a little bit too much YouTube at the moment. And there's... I found a loophole. Um, and, and unfortunately, I've, I've come across this, this boxing dude who's this YouTuber who now started to box. Anybody know his name? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was just a, a test again, which you failed. But um, it, yeah, Logan Paul and Jake Paul or whatever, these, these kids who now decided that they are boxers. And man, oh man, do they love themselves. And when they get up and promote themselves, it is just me, me, me. I'm the best. And I mean, I haven't even spoken about Kanye West and all of these other sports personalities and business personalities at Trump or, or whatever. 
And I, I mean, I, I'm using all of these American personalities, but that culture has a massive effect on us. And Christianity takes a completely different direction when it comes to this. It is very much at odds with this expressive individualism that we, that we encounter in this world. And the passage that I want us to, to look at is Philippians. And I want to look at that very famous passage in Philippians, Philippians 2. So if you have your Bible, you can just turn to that, or you can just switch on your Bible, or you can just listen very carefully. Philippians 2 from verse 3. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Have the mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Paul writes this to the Philippians, and he starts off by saying, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Can you see how this is in direct opposition to what the world tells us? Humility is something that I think most people in a church context, some, sometimes not even in a church context, uh, here in South Africa can appreciate. Humility, yeah, yeah, that's a good thing. But just know, in the Greco-Roman world, nobody thought humility was a good thing. The only time the various words associated with humility were used in the ancient world was when it referred to slaves. You are humble, and you are humble when you are weak, when you are insignificant. So today, if I say, I think you're really humble, you might say, oh, thank you. Or you might say, I know, right? Um, but, but in the ancient world, if somebody says, you're really humble, it would have been, oh, yeah, you really suck. You're like very, um, you know, bottom class. And... And then the Bible started this massive revolution where humility became a virtue. Aristotle and all of these Greek philosophers, they never list humility as one of their virtues, and they list a lot of virtues. But in the Bible, humility is referred to over 270 times, almost always in a positive context. So why is humility so important to the Christian imagination? What is it about humility? And why is it that we struggle with it? Now, this passage gives us a word which I think can unlock why we struggle with humility. And it is this word that isn't translated here in the ESV as conceit. Now, in some of the translations, it will be uh, tra translated as vainglory. Now, the Greek for that word is kiodoxia, kiodoxia, which basically means kio empty and doxia glory, empty glory empty glory. And what Paul is saying, you guys are fighting with each other because you've got empty glory. What's that about? What is this empty glory? The human condition, according to the Bible, is this constant urge, this desperate need 
to want to be respected, to want to be honored. We desperately want somebody to assure us that we're okay. Just tell me that I'm okay. Just tell me that I mean something. We have this cosmic insecurity. That's the story of mankind. And there's something wrong with us to our core, so wrong that I want to ask somebody to bring me water. Please. Now, <laughs> now we only... Why, why, why do we say there's something wrong with us? Why do we say that this... Uh, Mumford & Sons puts it so beautifully, they say, um, you have told me that I will find a hole within the fragile substance of my soul, and I've been trying to fill this thing with, with things unreal, and all the while my character, it steals. What is this hole within the very substance of my soul? What is that? Now, have you ever noticed... Thank you, good and humble servant, Marcus. Um, <clears throat> so, <clears throat> what is it? Have you guys ever noticed that if you don't feel, you're not aware of your body parts unless there's something wrong with it, right? So, so let's say Karnu uh, uh, walks in here and I ask Karnu, how are you doing? And he says, my elbow feels amazing. I would conclude that either he's weird um, or his elbow was not feeling amazing yesterday, right? And he thought he told me that, so he can just open up with, my elbow feels amazing. So our body parts only draw attention to themselves when, when they are broken, when there's something wrong with it. How often do we say or think, you know, that really hurt my feelings. It really hurt my feelings. Now, it didn't really hurt your feelings. Your feelings are fine. It hurt your ego. And why is it constantly drawing attention to itself? Why is it constantly broken? Because it's broken. Because it's like your elbow or like your toe. There's something wrong there. So maybe, <laughs> look, I'm in the young parent space now. So, so someone might say, oh, your kid is still on a dummy. Oh, that's interesting. Then you're like, hmm. Um, so, so, I'm a, so I'm a bad parent, I guess. Uh, and then you, you very quickly, like, uh, but I hear your baby cannot fall asleep by himself. You know, and it's, 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 it's this very lame but ugly fight that ensues. Um, are you still living in that, that house of your parents? Is, is, is that still happening? And then immediately you take it in the worst possible way. Have you finished your degree yet? Are you still studying what's going on there? Still single? Is that, is that still, still happening? And we feel snubbed, and when we feel snubbed, we feel attacked, and we immediately become very defensive. Now, a lot of people will, no, not a lot of people, but it is possible when somebody asks you, is your kid still on the dummy, to say, yes, still on the dummy, and to not think anything of it. Say, are you still single? Yeah, still single. How about you? Yeah. Um, and, just, and just continue, but because our egos are so fragile, it's immediately hurt. And the reason it's hurt is because it's never been healed. It's constantly broken. It's like a scab. And the slightest slight against it is immediately this reaction. We are constantly aware of our honor, of our integrity, of our dignity. Are you guys with me? And what we do is we try to fill that empty glory, that hole, 
with different things. We're constantly trying to persuade ourselves that we're enough. So the fancy basketball player is the best there ever was, and he, he convinces himself that if I score so many three-pointers or um, touchdowns, then I'll, I'll, be, I'll be something. The cocky musician, the, the rich businessman, they're all trying to fill that void. So this ego is very fragile, but this ego is also very competitive. You know why? Because you might say, yeah, I guess I'm pretty, but you're not pretty. There's no such thing as pretty. You're prettier than the other girls here. <laughs> That's what's going on. There's no such thing as being pretty. And in the same day, just, just tell me if I'm lying, in the same day, you might feel pretty and you might feel ugly depending on who you're spending time with, right? So I felt it in saying, um, yeah, I'm quite proud. I'm feeling quite good about myself. This was a while ago, to be fair. Um, I'm feeling quite good about myself because maybe I, at that stage I was hanging out with, I don't know, middle-aged guys who, who've already gone through a midlife crisis and, and, and now I'm, I'm feeling a bit better about myself. Um, but then I just hang out with, uh, with the Riechart or Henning, some of these pro athletes, and I'm like, oh, yes. Uh, I'm, I'm not feeling that great. In the same day, so I'm not pretty, I'm not rich, you're richer than someone. You're prettier than someone. I, I've, I've felt smart before, believe it or not. And then you move to the next meeting and you've got Daniel and Karnu and, and, and Anu or Daniel talking about something. I was like, oh man, I'm stupid. How can I try and uh, um, just create this illusion that I'm not? But the fact of the matter is that our ego is by its very nature competitive. That's, it's fragile and it is competitive. And there's something wrong with us, friends. Now, we can try and... This is, this is what C.S. Lewis says. Uh, I think Anna told that we're going to watch the C.S. Lewis movie, Shadowlands, and um, you must watch him because... watch the movie because we, we, we quote him every Sunday. And he... He says that the problem, the, a proud person is always looking down, and if you're always looking down, you cannot see what is above you. You cannot look at God. But pride is much more sneaky than just the obvious things. Maybe you're taking pride in being attractive or being rich or being smart. So here in the church, we've got a problem as well with pride. Although we value humility, we've got this problem because Paul is writing this letter to a church and telling them, do nothing out of selfish ambition. ambition. Don't do this, this vain glory thing. And in one of his other books, in the Screwtape Letters, the, the, who's read the Screwtape Letters? Oh, some of you. So in the Screwtape Letters, you've got two demons talking to each other about how to tempt these, these patients, humans. All right. So it, it's a weird book. Everything is in inverse. So it says, uh, I heard your patient has become humble. Okay? That's a problem. Humility is a problem for us, for us demons. But I've got a plan. Just draw his, his attention to his own humility. <laughs> draw his attention to his own humility. And then the demons, because then you'll get him. And we do that over and over again. You know what? Like when, I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, there might be people who come here with fancy cars and with fancy dress. And maybe... At some level, they're a little bit proud. You know, I, I'm successful. Look at my car. Look at my... 
But you know what? I, and, and they might look down on me and on, on some of you, but I can assure you, I definitely look down on them. I, I've, I've got this thing that I'm working with. I was like, oh. It turns into this very legalistic judgmentalism. And I think it works the other way around. One of the most difficult things is to stop being this judgmental older brother without becoming the prodigal son, with that licentiousness. Are you guys with me? So it's very, very difficult to tackle this thing called humility. Because even if you really try to be humble, you're probably going to mess it up. Um, when you meet people who are not humble, you're going to think, oh, uh, they're not humble. I mean, I've worked on this a little bit longer, but they're really not humble. You're sort of falling into the same trap. So how do we get out of this mess? Humility is actually not something that you can strive for. You can't go home tonight and say, I'm going to be humble. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really, really try and be humble this week. It doesn't work. It is a byproduct. So Paul says in verse 3 and 4, he says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than, than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. So what is the plan? What is the strategy to get out, out of this pride uh, vortex that we always find ourselves in? It is serve other people. Be focused on others. What is the greatest command? Love God, love your neighbor. In other words, Get outside of yourself. What does Jesus say about taking up your cross? If you, if you want to find yourself, lose yourself. This constant self-awareness, this camera that is supposed to look at the world is constantly inverted onto us and we become self-aware and it is just spiritually toxic. You want to break out of that? Start by serving. Start by loving other people. When I... Oh, in my pastoral ministry, when, when somebody has a, maybe a bad self-image, and they say, oh, you know, I, I just don't think that I'm good enough, I just don't think that I'm, I'm valued, I, then there's this temptation to say, you are valued, and you are good enough, I mean, you're amazing, you're, you're funny, you're smart, or whatever, um, but I think a better Christian answer would be to say, who cares what you think? It's, your life is not about you. Stop looking at other people. Um, so even if you've got a bad self-image, you're still struggling with pride. You're still struggling with humility. Why? Because you're thinking of yourself. So that's, that's where that, that famous, uh, famous C.S. Lewis line comes from, where he says, the object of, of life is not to think more of yourself, and it's also not to think less of yourself. It's to think of yourself less. So if you want to break out of this, <laughs> this spiral... Start by serving, by engaging other people, by getting outside of yourself. You know what? If you ever meet a humble person, you won't know it because humility does not draw attention to itself. If you meet someone and uh, let's say you come to me and say, oh, Johan, I heard you, uh, um, I don't know, it's a bad example because uh, I, I heard you, um, you, you've got three PhDs. Yeah, oh, you know what? I mean, I... I try, but uh, yeah, I know what. And, and then they say, oh, you won. I heard you ran a marathon. Ah, oh, yeah, you know those things. Ah, oh, yeah, man, yeah. Uh, and, uh, you, and, and somebody might walk away, oh, that Yuan is really humble. He's really humble. He doesn't want to talk about it. But it's drawing attention to my humility. And that is not being humble, <laughs> ironically. So if you experience and you encounter a truly humble person, you will walk away from it not knowing that this person was humble. 
you would walk away thinking, oh, that was a great conversation. That person is really interesting. He's interested in me and he's interested in life. It's such a joy to be, a, uh, um, uh, to, to be with that person. Do you, are you with me? So humility does not draw attention on, onto itself. Now, to, to practice humble servanthood is a way out of our, our pride. It's a, help, a way to get us unstuck. But it's also a way in. You see, service is at the very heart of God. When Jesus reflects on his ministry, he says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And serving is at the very heart of, of God. Gerald um, Hawthorne, Hathorne, probably Hathorne, he's American. Gerald Hathorne. He's a Greek scholar, and he's done many commentaries, and he wrote a very famous commentary on Philippians for the Zondervan group. And, and he shares all sorts of fancy Greek stuff that I do not know. I brought Cebu, um, he's there at the back, he knows Greek, and um, Daniel is, is a fancy doctor type. But uh, apparently, he says a better way to translate this, this passage, to really get at the heart of it, is to not think that although God is God, although Jesus was God, he, he didn't hold on to his godness, but he became a man. And that's how we typically read it, this, this, this famous hymn. So when, he, when we read, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. So what, what Hawthorne, Hathorne says is that a better translation would be, because Jesus is in his very nature God, he did not consider equality something to hold on to and became a servant. So him becoming a servant, him descending this ladder, did not happen in spite of him being God. It happened because he is God. Are you with me? So let me, let me try and flesh it out a little bit more. If God is in the business of serving, and he's been doing that forever within the Trinity, then when Jesus came to us, and he came as in the form of a servant, he wasn't disguising himself, he was revealing himself. God was not disguising himself in Jesus as this servant rabbi. He was revealing himself. Who of you know Superman? You've got Clark Kent, and that is Superman's very bad disguise. I mean, how the glasses work. I mean, uh, we can do a sermon series just on that question. But, but Clark Kent is the disguise of, 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 uh, of Superman. But Jesus Christ is not the disguise of God. It is the revelation of God. Does that make sense? So if we want to know what God is like, he is a God who serves. So if we want to follow in his footsteps, what should we do? If we want to imitate him, we need to serve. We need to give. Friends, humility, and I'm closing with this, is, is important. Well, I, I should say I'm starting to close with this. Humility is important because you cannot be saved without it. Remember when we started, you, you had this, this form of, of, of these psychiatric, I don't know, schizophrenic delusion of these three men who were convinced that they were the Christ. But then... We've got other low levels of delusion. So, for example, 
if you think of these these, these self-promoting people who are convinced they are the best thing that's e ever happened. What does David Brooks say? Um, you, are, you are told to sort of almost uh, arise to divinity. Um, that is also something that stops us from being saved. Muhammad Ali was famously on a, on a plane and uh, he was there in first class and the air hostess said, uh, sir, can you please uh, fasten your seatbelt? And Muhammad Ali being Muhammad Ali said, uh, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And the aerostess didn't take a step back, and she just said, Superman don't need no airplane either. Um, so fasten your seatbelt. Now, this I am the greatest, I can do it myself, this Frank Sinatra, I did it my way, all of that are different forms of delusion. What else is a delusion? The older brother mentality, to think that we can try and get God's salvation by really working hard at it, by really trying, we can, we can be, we can be, we can warrant our salvation. The only thing, friends, that can destroy you eternally is a lack of humility. So as we are preparing for the cross, for Easter, in this Lenten period, just know that humility is not something that is a nice to have. Our Christians must really try to be humble. It is the very thing that connects us with God. When Jesus says, I did not come for the healthy, but I came for the sick, he wasn't saying, I came just for this portion of, of, uh, of the world who are struggling. He was basically saying, unless you realize that there's something wrong with you, unless you are confronted with your sickness, I cannot save you. And that's why we go into the desert of land, so that we can be reconciled with that, that void, that empty glory that, is, that, that, that sits within our hearts. Jesus says in Matthew 5, blessed are the meek, blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the kingdom of God. We often read that to say, oh, yay, Jesus is nice. He's also including the humble. They can also be part of the kingdom of God. No, 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 no. He's saying unless you become humble, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. It is humility that connects us with God. The cross of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, will not make sense unless we look at ourselves and realize that there's something broken and we are constantly going to fill this hole with things unreal that will never satisfy. But it's only when we take it to Christ that he can make us whole again. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we repent we realize that we are so almost constantly painfully aware of ourselves. There's that unsmiling stare of our own self-awareness, our own self-consciousness, and we're constantly evaluating ourselves. And, ah, oh Lord, it, it is, there's just no life there. There's just no of more, a life of abundance. And it is in this life of abundance, Lord, that we want to live. But we are held back by pride. 
we are held back by this, this desire to just have more control over our lives. Lord, we have this massive cosmic insecurity that is at the heart of all of us. The only way in which that can be changed is if we look at you, the God of this universe who emptied himself, became a man, because that is what God does. He, you are a God that empties yourself. You are a God who lets serve. And we pray, Lord, that as we strive for humility, not directly, that we will be a serving people, that we will be a serving community, that we will follow your greatest command, which is to love God and to love others. And in that process, Lord, we, we know that the kingdom of God is there lying in waiting for us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your cross. As we prepare for Easter and as we go into Lent, we pray that we will be confronted with our own brokenness, but also reminded that the great physician is waiting for us with open arms. And it is in your name, in the name of Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen.